Hello, I'm Emma Power, and I'm pleased to welcome you back to the Housing Journal podcast. This is a collaboration between the three best housing journals, Housing Studies, Housing Theory and Society, and the International Journal of Housing Policy. First up, we drop into chat with Amanda Tattersall and Kurt Iverson from the University of Sydney. They're talking about their new paper, People Power Strategies in Contemporary Housing Movements, which has been published in the International Journal of Housing Policy. Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society then chats about retrofitting housing for energy efficiency. And we finish with Beth Watts from Housing Studies, who sits down with Professor Ji Chan to talk about the role of housing in China's social transformation, the focus of a special issue in the journal. But first, Amanda and Kurt. So, Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Here we are. Here we are to talk about our fascinating paper about people power. Now, probably the thing that the audience is going to be interested in the most is that our paper sort of starts where most of their paper ends, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely had an intention, didn't we, of picking up where a lot of awesome work on housing sort of stops, which is to importantly, work through the way that housing injustices are being kind of created in the world today uh, and work through even what kinds of demands we might articulate in opposition to some of those injustices and then finish with the rousing final paragraph that says, so we need global, amazing, insurgent housing movements to take on this challenge and really overturn those injustices. And like, yeah, yours and my interests, especially in what do those movements look like? Yes. Uh, how are they going to not only incorporate those demands in the directions, but what are their strategies for actually making those changes in the world? Absolutely. So our focus, when we use the phrase people power, we're using it to describe the strategies that organisations, movements and networks in cities might use, the different strategies they might use to bring people together to make change in those cities. I mean, look, and our interest in this comes from, you know, I have both been an organiser as well as uh, a scholar and, you know, Kurt, you've also played in both camps yeah. over, over the years. And beautifully, we were funded by the Halloran Trust here at the University of Sydney to take out some time, three years, to do in-depth research all across the world about how uh, these different housing movements work. And we ended up focusing in on four cities in this, in this article, and then we identified five people power strategies. So let's take you through them by um, with a few little examples from the different uh, cities that we studied. Do you want to start, Kurt? Yeah. And so, look, the most obvious place to start maybe and the most frustrating for many housing movements is a people power strategy called sort of playing by the rules, which is that any given city, um, particularly cities that, you know, describe themselves as democratic, uh, will engage citizens in consultations and participatory discussions, inviting their feedback on housing policy X or Y uh, and asking them to provide their input. And, you know, one way that you can try and build and enact your power in the city is to try and wrangle a bunch of people to write their most brilliantly awesome submissions and get a number of organisations to put their logo on the letterhead of a joint submission maybe uh, and try and feed into those processes. And obviously, one of the things about those processes that we know is that they're legitimate, um, you know, they're sort of legitimization exercises in the cities where they happen. 
Um, and so being able to demonstrate that you've got something to say in that process and being maybe at the table in some way is a good thing to do. But as most housing movements will know, it's also when you play by the rules, you're not setting the rules. Somebody else is setting the rules about how you participate, about what being at the table actually looks like. And frequently we know that, you know, there's an anonymous email inbox that says your input here and you send off your wonderful submission and you get thanked for it. Uh, and then the decision that was made six months ago gets enacted magically afterwards. So I guess after you've played by the rules, what next or what else on top of doing that? And I guess that's where our next four strategies come in. That's right. And so one of the other strategies that we saw in place in a bunch of the cities was called mobilising. And people would be familiar with what mobilising looks like, mass demonstrations, gatherings of people, often done quickly and some not so much spontaneously, but fast, often in reaction to an egregion. And in Moscow, so even in a city where, where we can't assume that we can always play by fair rules. We saw activists, housing activists, um, move against uh, the demolition of a whole bunch of older public homes um, to... By, by mobilising the street, 50,000 people gathered in um, in May 2017 um, against the demolition movement and that was building off a, a, a green spaces movement that had been in the city for a lot longer. Now, what we saw with, with mobilising is there's immense power in being able to say no when you gather in demonstration. You can do it quickly and you can say a very clear no. But what is challenging with mobilising is that it's hard to sometimes work out what you are for? What are the solutions you're advocating? So sometimes people shifted to different forms of strategy, didn't they, Kurt? (laughs) Well, yes, they did. Um, (laughs) And so, look, uh, another form of people power that sort of responds to that difficulty with mobilising is a form of people power that we call organising. And organising, I guess, is much more focused on a longer process of relationship building in civil society and leadership building that is really intentionally designed to bring new people into politics and into active citizenship. So mobilising in a way is about like finding out who out there might already agree with you and turning them out where organising is much more about trying to say that there are a whole bunch of potential allies out there in our civil society and city and how can we engage them and build uh, a set of demands uh, and processes in civil society that would establish what our common interests might be. And rather than only finding people who already agree with us, it's like, well, let's find out who's out there and what we might agree on. And so we looked at organising around housing in Sydney, our home city here, where the Sydney Alliance has embraced that mode of uh, broad-based community organising associated with the Industrial Areas Foundation and the Yelinsky tradition. And Amanda was, you know, directly involved in actually establishing the Alliance and bringing that mode of people power here to Sydney. And what's been remarkable about that is that the, uh, the Sydney Alliance has fought a long campaign and is still fighting it around more uh, affordable housing in Sydney, trying to get things up and running like inclusion rezoning uh, in new developments and getting the public sector to use its procurement powers and its land much more effectively for public and affordable housing. And what's been fantastic about it is that it really has brought into the housing policy space a whole bunch of civil society players and actors that are not usually associated with housing. Um, and built a really diverse movement uh, behind those things and reached out to parts of the city that are often also not involved in our politics here, uh, particularly in the southwest and northwest suburbs. But 
you know, it's a very slow process of building relationships. Um, it's not necessarily agile when you're trying to build such a deep and broad alliance. And so, and definitely also here operating in a very hostile political climate uh, and finding it difficult to take on the ongoing sell-offs of public housing, for example, using that strategy. Cool. So the fourth people power strategy is prefiguring. And what we mean by that is uh, where groups are able to build or construct or enact the vision for their change in their practice. So where we saw that was in Cape Town, where after failing to convince the city of Cape Town through uh, by playing by the rules of mobilising that they needed affordable housing, they ended up occupying two large provincial healthcare precincts and creating emergency housing for thousands of people in the inner city of Cape Town. And this was the first example of black affordable housing in Cape Town since democracy was enacted in 1994. And it was both extraordinary because it was actually showing that it could be done, making the impossible possible. It had an extraordinary narrative power when it came to then creating the space for actual political um, transformation and creation of sort of city-led affordable housing. But also let's not romanticise how hard it was. When I went there and visited all of these um, precincts, it was hard work maintaining prefigurative spaces. Being the change that you seek is very, very exhausting and time-consuming and it places immense pressure on those seeking the change. And finally, we have... People power through building parties and political platforms and actually effectively trying to run for office and take over City Hall. And our example in the paper here, of course, is from Barcelona, where uh, a housing activist associated with a movement called La Paz, the people against, uh, who were fighting against evictions that had come in the wake of the global financial crisis there. You know, they tried all those strategies too, playing by the rules, mobilising, uh, organising occupations uh, in the squares of Barcelona and many other things and uh, decided eventually that part of the blockage that all of those strategies kept coming up against was not having, you know, control over the levers of state, as it were, and thinking that maybe we could actually form our own citizen platform and run for office. And so they formed a platform called Barcelona en Camus, Barcelona all together, and successfully ran for office in the city uh, twice now, 2015 and 2019, Articolau's been elected mayor. And in really interesting... Uh, Outcomes there where, um, for instance, that city government has been able to take really effective action against Airbnb and the pressures that it, that was putting on uh, rental increases, uh, taking effective action on mortgage foreclosures, and also uh, trying, you know, slowly but steadily to try and build more public and social housing in the city, but also coming up against the limits of what an urban metropolitan scale government can do when, you know, a city like Barcelona that is also so profoundly shaped by what goes on across Spain, across the European Union, and indeed as a global city in, you know, flows of finance that are much beyond the city that also, you know, really having to struggle to both stay connected to the movements on the street uh, and in the town halls where it came from, but also uh, have power in a much sort of globalised urban context. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to find out about the synergies between these different people power strategies and also the tensions, you'll have to read the paper. I think we're out of time. That was Amanda Tattersall and Kurt Iverson, authors of a new paper in the International Journal of Housing Policy. And you can check out our journal Twitter handle at IJHP Editors. 
And next up, we have Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. Climate change demands we reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Many countries, such as China and the Netherlands, have committed to significant reductions between 50 to 60 percent on 1990 levels. Australia, on the other hand, has only committed to under 30 percent. Most recently, the US joined the Paris Agreement and pledged to cut carbon emissions by 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels. Almost a third of carbon emissions originate from the built environment. In fact, often from our homes. So the energy efficiency of these homes really matters. Research on retrofitting homes to make them more efficient is the feature of the first issue of Housing Theory and Society for 2021. So I'd like to welcome to the show today Frank DeFater, who's a long-term researcher focusing on environmental issues and energy-efficient housing. He's based at the University in Wageningen, which is a world-renowned university for environmental research. And uh, he's published one of four of his papers in um, Housing Theory and Society. So welcome to the show, Frank. Uh, great uh, to be here and great to have the opportunity uh, to um, explain more about my paper. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to have you on board. Now, retrofitting is quite a technical subject. So why does it belong also in housing theory and society? Yeah, for, uh, for me, the starting point of uh, interest in housing retrofit relates to uh, the energy savings. So, of course, with all these major programs uh, trying to uh, cut uh, the energy consumption in, in the building stock, but we find out it's not easy uh, in realizing the, the energy savings. So we found out only like 60% in a common project is realized. So for me, this starts quite a new field of research on why we do not realize the energy savings. And I think this uh, relates to the social dynamics of householders, their uh, behaviors, their practices, and also how they interact with the builders, the constructors, and also with government officials. Mm, that, that brings me to my next question, actually, because you focus in your article about practices and systems of provision. But what do you mean by that when you apply it to this uh, retrofitting topic? Yeah, so I think practice theory is, of course, quite well used in the field of incremental sciences and also becoming more and more common. Uh, and I think one of the challenges of practice theory is it's, it's a lot focused on the everyday life worlds and like uh, daily practices like uh, cooking and, and heat and uh, yeah, so practices like that. Uh, stop, maybe. Um, I think the uh, practice theory is becoming more and more common these days, uh, but usually it's focused on the everyday life world. So it's about cooking or showering, uh, something like that. But uh, we found out it's uh, not only the everyday life world that matters to help realizing the energy saving, but we also need to take into account broader um, elements in what we call assistance of provision. So to capture the, the more structural dimensions of social practices, we think it's quite interesting also to dive into the processes of housing retrofitting 
to find out uh, yeah, key moments uh, of interaction. And uh, we decided to also uh, conceptualize these interactions as practices of intermediation or practices in the systems of provision. That's really interesting. So you, you also seem to think that this, of course, varies by location and, 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 and different places. And now, Frank, you've chosen three cities and two really different countries. Why? I mean, what, what, what is it about retrofitting in those places, you know, that's going on? Yeah, I think the contrast of those three cities is quite interesting. Uh, so it's about differences in organizing housing retrofit processes. In uh, Amsterdam, we have different focus points in the retrofit uh, yeah, programs uh, and with regard to China. Uh, so in uh, Amsterdam, we're more focused on kind of uh, individual approach, uh, maybe also part of uh, European society. Um, but in, in China, it's quite different uh, nation, different culture, and everything is more collective. And uh, also with regard to housing retrofit processes. And um, to make it concrete also a little bit, uh, in uh, the Netherlands, we have a lot of individual heating systems uh, that are used in housing retrofits and in China, collective uh, heating systems. Um, and we thought it could be quite interesting to have those contracts being part of these projects. And uh, yeah, as a listener, you also might think yeah, they're totally not comparable, China and Netherlands. But then uh, yeah, maybe new for you, but also in China, the housing retrofit is an interesting and quite large topic, uh, with enormous amounts of programs with also institutional arrangements in play. So also in China, our residence committees are a majority approval regulation. So in a way, it's also quite uh, the same. There are two sorts of processes or practices that you focus on. One is a practice of recruitment and the other was a practice of appropriation. What do you mean by recruitment and appropriation? Yeah, so uh, uh, looking into those uh, projects, I went to 25 retrofit uh, projects in this, uh, in for my PhD thesis. Uh, we found out the, the start of the process. Uh, it's about uh, yeah, getting to know the residents, uh, getting to make them familiar with the retrofit uh, construction who is uh, coming. The kind of the, the landing of the residents seems quite uh, important. And um, we decided to uh, give also a lot of conceptual attention to this phase. And we, uh, we have phrased them as retrofit practices of recruitment. It seems quite central. But from an engineering perspective, uh, it's mostly about only uh, yeah, I'll wait till the residents say yes, and then they do the retrofit construction and then they leave. So, but we thought, because we do not often realize the expected energy saving, we should also take into account this uh, phase after the retrofit construction. And for us, this is about the appropriation of the retrofitted apartments from a household perspective. So it's about householders becoming more used to their maybe new uh, 
new windows or new uh, cooling systems or new heating uh, systems. And it seems quite central as well as a kind of form of aftercare or um, you know, for the reach of the person. So Frank, what's the main contribution towards uh, of your research towards you know, theories in this area, but perhaps also policymakers as well? I think when we uh, consider housing retrofit, uh, yeah, the easy is to think about it's about bricks and buildings, it's about physical aspects of life. But I think my research um, really uh, shows with a lot of examples, it's about people, it's about humans using those buildings. And when we consider um, processes of housing retrofit, one of the key themes I found out uh, coming to the, all the interviews I did, and for this project, that be more than 300 interviews in total. So it's a bit more as in this specific paper, but in a, in a larger project. And um, it's all about trust. So it's about um, feeling safe. Um, and uh, I think this uh, kind of new perspective on housing retrofit uh, seems quite helpful also for policymakers. Uh, and it's about trust in people. So trust in the constructors who are uh, doing the retrofit, um, and also trust uh, in uh, the technologies or in the new uh, aspects in the retrofit department. Can also be material uh, like uh, walls uh, and windows. And uh, more broader, it's in. Uh, it's in like a trust system trust or institutional trust. So it's like a kind of um, understanding um, and trust in energy labeling aspects, for example. That's great. And you've taken us from the technical to the social, to the practices, you know, to the interactions between people and the things that uh, matter to them. Obviously, uh, with an enormous amount of uh, qualitative research behind it as well, it sounds really impressive. So thanks again for your time um, and also for your for your contribution to the journals. Much appreciated. So um, success with uh, taking it further, Frank. It's um, very much a topic for, for Europe and, and for the world. So terrific work. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, to doing this uh, contribution to your podcast. I just uh, want to invite all the listeners uh, uh, to my public defense. It can also be watched online. So if you're quite interested uh, on some June 9 at 11 o'clock Dutch time, uh, feel welcome to join online. Thanks. Well, that's great. And congratulations in advance. Okay. See you. See you. That was Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society, and their Twitter handle is at Housing Theory. Our last stop today is with Beth Watts from Housing Studies. In this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking to Professor Ji Chen from the Department of Public Economics and Social Policy at Shanghai Jiao Tong University. We'll be discussing an exciting new special issue in housing studies focused on the role of housing in China's social transformation. 
The special issue has been co-edited by Ji Chen and Housing Studies own Ngai Min Yip from the City University of Hong Kong. Papers in the special issue arose out of an international conference in Hong Kong in 2018, initiated by the late and great housing scholar Ray Forrest, and the special issue is dedicated to his memory. You can also find an article remembering Ray Forrest and his work on the Housing Studies website. Gee, warm welcome to the Housing Journal podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting So this special issue, as I said, is focused on understanding the role of housing in China's social transformation. So why is this such an important question for housing scholars? Uh, because in China, we have just experienced very special, unique uh, experience of housing transformation. Of course, uh, everything in China has uh, transformed greatly, the society, the cities, uh, but the housing plays a very uh, special role in the social and urban transformation. You can say the housing affects people's uh, labor market choice, education, and uh, uh, also affects their wealth and also affects their family and uh, their marriage and near everything. And the whole thing is the bridge, connect uh, individuals, society, and the state. And it is a very good point very, uh, that, uh, to study the transformation of Chinese society. And, and such transformation, we think, also bring um, broad implication to the, uh, all over the world. And I think because China is a very big country, and um, uh, there are so many population, and uh, what happened in China, I think we can have a lot of implication to leaders uh, uh, across the world. And uh, but. Uh, uh, housing has uh, experienced so many uh, transformation. There's a large knowledge gap in the field. And uh, through this uh, special use, we wish we can provide some to bridge the knowledge gap and bring some, bring some uh, new insights to uh, not just the field of housing study, but to the uh, general social science. Absolutely. The the editorial is just a fascinating social commentary um, f- for anyone really, let alone someone interested in housing issues. One of the really interesting questions raised in your and Yip's editorial is the extent to which the concepts we use in housing studies, like tenure, public housing, home ownership, financialization, the extent to which they're fit for purpose or they work in the same way in the Chinese context. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yes, uh, just as I mentioned, right, the housing is the, is the bridge, is bridge connect people, society and the state. And uh, you know that like Chinese, uh, in Chinese society, the state, the government, it's very powerful. And the government state affect uh, near everything in the society and uh, the housing supply, the housing demand, and uh, even the housing finance uh, is affected by the Chinese government's purpose. Chinese government uh, wish to uh, promote economic growth and the housing plays a very special function in such uh, transition including 
the road to the labor market, the, its road to the urban uh, development and uh, the finance development. So uh, we want to, through this special issue, we can help people to understand how uh, the housing is used as a kind of tool to uh, reshape the society. Absolutely. Can you give us um, an example of the way in which the state uses housing as a tool to affect society? Or is there a particular message from the special issue that um, you thought was particularly fascinating? Uh, for example, uh, we in this paper, we focus about uh, the public housing policy. And the public housing policy in China is not just a social welfare policy. It's also a kind of tool for economic development. And the local development use public housing to promote uh, the city's uh, economic growth to attract people that they are interested. So is public housing um, a desirable housing tenure in China in general? Can you generalize in that way? Uh, we could not say that because uh, the public housing mainly touched at uh, people who could not afford the commodity housing immediately. But however, it is very important for the people, uh, for the new generation, for the high-skilled workers, but they could not afford the market housing. However, mm -hmm. the local government think they are very important to the local economy. So they are willing to provide support for such people. Fascinating. So what future research would you like to see published in housing studies that takes this area of scholarship forward? Uh, in this special issue, we have included several papers discussing about the relationship between housing and uh, uh, social inequality, uh, especially intergenerational inequality. But in the future, we wish there's more paper, no research discussing how the housing policy or housing market receive the social inequality in China and uh, especially intergeneration inequality. And uh, it's also uh, how housing affects the social, uh, social integration. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's a really fascinating um, editorial and I'm very excited to see the rest of the papers in the special issue, which will all be available on the Housing Studies website. And we will also provide a link to that in memory of Ray Forrest article that I mentioned to you. So uh, I, I advise our listeners to go and explore the special issue in all its glory. And uh, G, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Bye bye. <laughs>